Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's a concept that Nietzsche described as that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And tiny doses of, let's use the word poison, actually improve longevity. You name the tiny dose of poison, you get an improvement in health and longevity. you actually eat once a day this is something that our another guest wim hoff who's the uh an advocate of the cold plunge method and breathing method uh seems like that's something that a lot of people that are very deep into the health space have been doing so i'm curious to know what is it that you eat specifically once a day and is it the same thing every single day gee i hope not um yeah actually um started uh, having one meal a day uh, during the months from January through June, uh, now 18 years ago. And I actually wrote about doing this in my, my first book, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. And interestingly enough, as far as I know, I was the first author to start writing about um, time-restricted eating. In an extreme time restricted eating. And I actually had an entire chapter uh, in the initial manuscript. And my editor at Random House said, You know, this book is already crazy and this is really crazy. And we're going to get rid of this chapter. I said, No, 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 you can't do that. There's really solid evidence. This was 20 years ago. Um, And she said, Well, I'll give you two pages. And I said, Well, okay. So there's two pages in that book. And I saw her at a Mind Body Green conference last last summer, and she came up to me and she said, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry." She said, "You were so far ahead of your time. I <laughs> you had the whole chapter." So, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I de- so for instance, uh, yesterday you know, or last night. So I usually eat all my calories in a two hour window between six and two eight hours. o'clock. Wow. Um. Now, why do I do that between six and eight o'clock at night? It's because my wife and I are home at, at that time. She has a business as well. So if I was going to do it correctly, I'd probably have that two hour window noon to two o'clock in the afternoon. But that's not practical for either of us. So why is it better for noon versus eating at six Well, the longer that you can have between your final meal of the day and going to bed, as I write about in The Longevity Paradox, the better it is uh, for your brain to have what's called a brain wash. And interestingly, our brain undergoes a wash cycle, and it occurs during deep sleep. 
And deep sleep in general occurs early in the sleep cycle. And when you eat, um, most of your blood flow is diverted to your gut for several hours. Digestion is actually very energy expensive. Mm. And so you don't have the rush of blood up to your brain to do deep brain cleaning if you eat close to bedtime. So uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who wrote The End of Alzheimer's, has become a good friend of mine, uh, thinks that you really should have a bare minimum of three hours uh, between the last meal of the day and, and going to bed, going to sleep. And I'd like to, a couple days a week, push that to four hours, if at all possible. So, Interesting. So for someone that's a nocturnal like myself that goes to bed 1, 2 a.m., sometimes 3 depending on what YouTube video I'm watching. Does that mean that I can actually eat a bit later than most people that go to bed early? So it's really just about before you fall asleep. It's not just about the Correct. time of the day. Yeah, it's really before you go to sleep that makes the difference. We're actually designed to every day have about a 12-hour period of going into ketosis and a 12-hour period of burning glucose as our main fuel. And unfortunately, most of us in North America and now sadly in most of the world, we tend to eat uh, over about a 16-hour period uh, during the day. And um, some beautiful work by Sachin Panda at uh, Salk Institute in San Diego, having people track their eating habits on an app found that most Americans are actually eating for 16 hours every day. And mm. so we actually now never uh, get into a period of daily ketosis. And daily ketosis during part of the day is a really good idea. Continuous ketosis daily for all your life uh, is unfortunately a really dumb idea. Mm. maybe we can talk about that as well yeah we'd love to so uh, the idea of eating once a day probably is a bit extreme for most people especially if they've never heard of this idea right so there is this idea of 16 and 8 which is you fast Correct. for 16 and 8 hours and then you ate within the 8 some some people do 18 and 6 i believe which is fasting for uh, uh for that a bit longer for that amount right. of time yeah the um I mean, the evidence is that probably, uh, and this is what's in my book and how to get people to actually time control their eating. Uh, and we try to get them down to about a seven hour window and teach people how to do that over a month. Uh, six hours is probably the perfect window. There's a paper in humans showing that there's no additional benefit to uh, reducing that to a four hour window. Mm. So, um, but I think the more we can contract our period of eating, the better off uh, in, in all respects. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to dig into the, some of the benefits. So you mentioned uh, that there are benefits of doing this. Some people may not have heard about it. What are the core benefits that people can see from this idea of restricted eating during the day? Yeah, it's, there's actually some very interesting anecdotes uh, about how most people in the world used to eat. And even in Victorian England, which was a little over 100 years ago, uh, people only ate two meals a day. 
and uh, usually a lunch and a dinner. Breakfast was unheard of. And most societies, for instance, the French have no word for breakfast. Um, right. They had to invent petit déjeuner because uh, déjeuner was the first meal and it was lunch. Mm. So the idea that we were actually supposed to be eating breakfast is, is a very modern concept. And it was actually perpetrated by the cereal industry um, that you had to. Yeah. It's like, you know, you tell a lie often enough, uh, it becomes a truth. Um, yeah. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, which we'll also get into around fructose. Yeah, yeah. fructose. So most hunter-gatherer societies don't eat throughout the day. Most hunter-gatherer societies in general eat one meal a day. And if they've gone out during the day and gathered, and their meal is usually in the evening when everybody returns. The women are usually gathering and the men are often hunting and the hunting usually doesn't go well. So it's a chance for men to just go clown around for a while. Um, mm. That's that's a whole nother story. Uh, but the idea that our ancestors crawled out of a cave and said, what's for breakfast is ludicrous because there was no storage system and you had to find breakfast. And if that's when you found breakfast, that was break fast. So we're actually really incredibly well designed to not eat early in the day and you can prove that by looking at our cortisol levels start rising about 4 a.m that actually makes more glucose available our epinephrine levels start rising which keeps glucose in circulation so we normally have this mechanism to you know shower ourselves with available glucose early in the morning and it's just the wonderful cereal and other companies uh, trying to convince us that we're not designed for this and how modern is this i'm, I'm talking i'm looking at companies like kellogg 1906 uh, 1906 it's been 1906, about 100 kellogg's years corn, the kellogg's cornflake company was formed in 1906 by damn, william damn. kellogg Oh, and they actually conspired with the United Fruit Company, makers of Chiquita Bananas. At the same time, they actually paid physicians to tell people that bananas were the perfect health food and a great way to start your day was a bowl of Kellogg's cornflakes with a sliced banana. And they actually had coupons in Kellogg's cornflakes for a free bunch of Chiquita bananas. So that Wait, you are you saying bananas are also bad for you? I eat bananas Holy every every morning. How are they bad for you? They're bad for you. Yeah. I thought they have so, potassium. They they're good for you after you work out. Turns, turns out bananas have one of the lowest sources of potassiums of, of fruits. You were much better off having some spinach or broccoli. You're kidding. So no, and it, a ripe banana a ripe banana has anywhere from 16 to 20 grams of fructose. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but quite frankly, uh, you will have less sugar. Not that you're interested in sugar, but you'll have less sugar in a full-sized Hershey candy bar than you will in a banana. You will have less sugar in a glazed donut than you will in a banana. Now, I'm not telling people to go have a Hershey's candy bar or a donut. Yeah. But the fact is, there's actually less sugar in a glazed donut or a full Hershey's candy bar than there is in a banana. Now, a there, ripe, is, 
there is a difference though, right? Like processed sugar versus something that's a natural sugar and how it affects the body, you know? No, in fact, natural sugar is a whole lot worse. So, um, and this was my research as an undergraduate at Yale that's continued up until the present time. Great apes only gain weight during fruit season. And fruit season, believe it or not, only occurs once a year, even in the jungle. Fruit does not ripen year-round in the jungle. We know that the Hanzas, one of the last uh, hunter-gatherer tribes in Tanzania, only eat fruit once a year during fruit season. And all great apes and foragers gain weight during fruit season because fructose is designed to make you make fat. And that was a really good thing back in the good old days when getting calories and staying alive was a really important thing. Mm. And fruit, the, the reason you and I have color vision and your dog or cat don't is because you and I are fruit predators. And the plant uses the color of ripe fruit to tell you when the sugar content of that plant of that fruit is the highest and when it would be most beneficial for you to eat it. And fructose, unlike glucose, does not raise initially insulin levels so that you will not have the ability to be full. So you can eat tons and tons of fructose, which benefited the plant because you would distribute more of its seeds mm. because the plant only produces fruit to induce you to eat its babies so that you will distribute it someplace else with a generous dollop of fertilizer. So you're saying back in the day when we didn't have an abundance of food around us, it was meant to, like, that's why bananas, when they're ripe, they're the most colorful. Apples, when they're the brightest, when, it, when it's red. You're saying because we needed that source of energy, that, that, that uh, burst of energy when we didn't have a lot of food, no, we needed that source to produce actually fat. It turns out that fructose suppresses energy production. It actually decreases ATP production. And this is what I talk about in the energy paradox. Mm. So quite frankly, the last thing you would want to have to boost your energy before a workout is a fruit smoothie. And fructose is actually a toxin that's taken directly to the liver rather than going into circulation, where the liver detoxifies it into uric acid, which causes gout and raises blood pressure, and converts it into triglycerides, which are the first form of fat from fructose. Triglycerides are deposited as fat. So I found starting 20 years ago that if I drop the amount of fruit in people's diets, that their triglycerides would fall, their LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, would fall, and their HDL, the good cholesterol, would rise. And I even published a paper years ago that our heart-healthy diet recommendations are all wrong. They're backwards. That's insane. So this idea of an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Is this, is this also a cereal company thing that they invented here? Well, so the apple a day, back when when I was growing up, apples were quite small. And you probably got maybe four bites out of an apple, and that was the end of it. 
The apple then had not been bred for sugar content. And the vitamin content of apples and minerals was actually much higher. For instance, the vitamin C content in apples has decreased about 70% in the last 50 years because mm. they've been bred for size and sweetness. And that's and we even changed the names. I mean, now for goodness, we have a honey crisp apple. I mean, does that give you any <laughs> idea of what that thing it's is? It's our favorite kind. <laughs> Yeah. And blueberries, for instance, you, blueberries used to be these little bitter things that you had to put a half a cup of sugar on to make them edible. Now they've been bred for sugar content and blueberries, even organic blueberries are the size of a grape. Yeah. And they're now one of the, they're the highest sugar content of any of the berries. Mm. And don't get me started on grapes. A cup of grapes has about four to six teaspoons of sugar in that oh, cup of grape. Man, those are my favorites. Of course they are. Killing me here. Because you've been bred to seek that out. Hmm. Two-thirds of our tongue are sweet receptors. Let me gotcha. give you another example. Um, we have uh, a home in Santa Barbara, California, and we have a a garden and we have raspberries and blackberries and which are the two lowest sugar fruits. Actually the lowest sugar fruit is a passion fruit, which is just now mm. coming into So blackberries and raspberries bear uh, normally for about a month and a half. Um, that's about it. My blackberries are done. Uh, my raspberries are done, and I won't see them until sometime next June when they'll bear again. But I can go down the road to Oxnard, California, and I can see rows and rows and rows of blackberries and raspberries because they've been now hybridized to bear year-round. That doesn't mean we should be eating them year-round. That's modern. And there were no 747s bringing blueberries to Costco in February. Um, that's a modern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we should have access to fruit 365 days a year is a modern phenomenon, just like there was no such thing as cereal until 1906. It's also like the espresso, how it was supposed to be this big, and look how big this coffee cup is. This is not how we were supposed to drink coffee either. That's correct. Yeah, we uh, there's tremendous benefits out of out of coffee, but not, certainly not in the supersize that we've come to. So, what fruits do you recommend people eat? You mentioned passion fruit has the lowest concentration of sugar. Is that something that you still recommend us to eat, or you're saying avoid? In so what general, I, in general, uh, my first book, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, one of our sayings was give fruit the boot. And we also have to remember that anything with a seed is a fruit. And that includes zucchinis, cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes. These are actually all fruits. An avocado is a fruit. It's a single seeded berry, but it is almost all fat and fiber. There's very little sugar content in an avocado. What I suggest to people, and I talk about this in all my books, is that have fruit in season, but understand that it is a special treat. Um, I wrote about this in The Plant Paradox years ago when I was first preaching this. Um, we were at the Santa Barbara Farmer's Market in June, and we're looking at a 
beautiful peaches, which had just come into season. And I pick some up and my wife says, hey, aren't you the guy who says give fruit the boot? And I said, yeah, but, you know, now it's in season. You know, look at that beautiful peach. And she said, I'll tell you what, smart guy, let's do a little experiment this summer. We're not going to have any fruit this summer. And let's see what happens. And I said, oh, yeah, she put it back. <laughs> so we didn't have any fruit that summer. I lost, and we didn't change anything else. I lost eight pounds that summer, and my wife lost five pounds. And wow. just by removing fruit from our diet. Good for you guys. Wow. Fruit is designed. Uh, it was designed on purpose for us to gain weight. And it was a, it was a wonderful way to gain weight. Um, but we don't need to do that anymore. Mm. So one of the newer things, wouldn't say uh, maybe more popularized things that's been coming up as well, is this idea of taking care of your gut. In your microbiome. This is something that people are now calling your second brain. It's not something that's well understood, definitely more than it has been before. But talk to us a little bit about the connection between the gut and our overall health being. Just because I've eaten kimchi my entire life as a Korean that was born there. My mom has a kimchi fridge back at home where she makes it herself. I had no idea that it was good for your gut. It was just something that we ate throughout our entire lives. And I just so happened to fact that learned that it was really good for you because of the probiotics that are that are included. Uh, but I've had stomach issues, you know, well parts of my younger life, and I know this is an issue that a lot of people have, where they drink coffee and they all of a sudden they need to go to the bathroom. Um, but talk to us a little bit about what the importance of taking care of your gut microbiomes is and how it relates to longevity and your overall health. So uh, the microbiome uh, is what we refer to as the bacteria, the viruses, the funguses, the molds, the protozoas, and the worms that live in our gut. The holobiome uh, refers to the organisms that live not only there, but in our mouth, in our ears, in our nose, in our vaginal canal, in the breast ducts of women, and on our skin and also in a cloud uh, around us. And people who read the Peanuts uh, comic strip uh, remember Pigpen, who had this kind of cloud around his head. And that's actually, we have a bacterial cloud around our heads. So the microbiome, 90%, there's so far identified 100 trillion separate uh, bacteria in our gut. And they constitute about 90% of all the cells that occupy humans. So only 10% of us are human. But what's even more startling is that 99% of all the genes uh, in us are non-human genes. Our genes are only a fraction of uh, what constitutes us, our genetic makeup. And as I talk about in the longevity paradox and also in the energy paradox, we've actually uploaded most of our decision-making processes to our microbiome cloud, if you like, because there's so much computer processing power uh, in that genetic information that we don't have. And what we're now learning more and more and more is that the microbiome actually teaches our immune system how to behave, 
our microbiome actually controls most of our behaviors, including our emotions. And we're basically a condominium for our microbiome. We're a symbiotic relationship with uh, co-equal branches of government, if you will. And the exciting thing in the energy paradox is that not only are probiotics important, but it's actually the prebiotics, the food that you feed the microbiome, that's critically important because the microbiome creates a series of compounds that are called postbiotics. And the postbiotics is actually the language that's now been deciphered on how the microbiome talks to us. What do you mean talk to us? Believe it or not, your microbiome controls your behavior. And it controls it through chemical messages that only recently have actually been deciphered. It's, as I talk about in the NG paradox, it's like in science, uh, it's, the, it's breaking the enigma code of World War II, the German code that had to be deciphered. And you know, breaking that enigma code was actually, in, in so many ways, how World War II was won. And it took years and years and years to decipher that code. We've suspected for a number of years that the microbiome talks to our brain, talks to our mitochondria. We never quite understood how that talk occurred because we didn't know what the language was. But recently, that language has been deciphered. And so that language is what, what are called postbiotics. So let me, let me give you a great example on how this has evolved, if I may. Please, please. Okay. So we've known for a number of years, and I've written about this in the plant paradox and the longevity paradox, that you could take um, feces from fat mice and feed them to skinny mice, and the skinny mice would become fat. You could take feces from fat human beings and feed them to skinny mice, and the skinny mice would become fat. You can do fecal transplants from fat human beings to skinny human beings because of C. difficile, and that person will become fat. And and so we we knew that there were what were called obesogenic bacteria, and we knew that there were skinny bacteria. Well, we thought that the obesogenic bacteria were somehow uh, better at extracting more calories from food and then passing it on to you know, their uh, host. What's recently been discovered is that it goes far beyond that. The obesogenic bacteria actually send messages to your brain to seek out the foods that they want, which are simple sugars and saturated fats. And the more obesogenic bacteria you have, the more of those messages that are sent to your brain. So your brain 
your hunger is actually controlled by the bacteria that live in your gut. Wow. And this and, is a recent discovery. Recent discovery, yeah. And I go into, I talked a little bit about it in my previous books, but we go deep dive into postbiotics in the energy paradox. And it'll just, it'll blow your mind. It's just like, oh my gosh. And, you know, Dr. Daniel Amen, who's become a friend of mine, who's a, a leading psychiatrist in brain health. And he's now convinced that probably most of mental health, as we know it, is actually controlled by the microbiome and gut dysbiosis and leaky gut is probably behind most of what we now uh, think of as mental health. Wow. Yeah, it's insane. So given how important the gut biome is, microbiome is, and the fact that there are 100 uh, trillion cells out there that control our mood, the longevity. What are some of the things that people can do that, number one, can you actually regrow cells that you may have lost from taking antibiotics or any of these harmful things that you may have lost in the past? And how does one actually continue to grow in, in a healthy manner? Yeah, so interestingly enough, um, it's true that not only the antibiotics we take, which are broad-spectrum antibiotics, wipe out our gut microbiome for the most part. It's like burning a forest down with napalm. And that, you know, a tropical rainforest is a very complex ecosystem. And we're now learning that certain bacteria are dependent on other bacteria to give them foods that they can't manufacture. Bacteria, believe it or not, were the original uh, rave party uh, people. It turns out that bacteria do what's called quorum sensing. Bacteria actually can count how many of their kind are in a particular location. And when that count gets to a critical quorum, then they make a move. Um, and so they, they've been sending themselves text messages, you know, hey, we're meeting at this warehouse at such and such a time. <laughs> and, you know, to, to think that these little one-celled organisms, you know, with no brain have been, you know, having rave parties for billions of years, it's just, it is mind boggling. So getting back to your question, you really want to, you want to feed the bacteria that are in your gut, but hiding. And I talk about, we now have found that a little set of bacteria live in what are called crypts in the microvilli, and they're pretty much protected from antibiotics. But you have to kind of induce them to come out of hiding by the foods that they want to eat. And those are prebiotics. Now, the nomenclature is a pain in the neck. So probiotics are living bacteria. Most probiotics don't get through stomach acid into the gut. And so that kimchi Actually, the probiotics in the kimchi wasn't very important. turns out that cabbage is a fabulous prebiotic. Mm -hmm. So all that kimchi was actually a prebiotic that made it beneficial. And it turns out that prebiotics are necessary for 
probiotics, friendly bacteria, to make postbiotics, which is the language that they control us with. So you got to have prebiotics to make postbiotics. Uh, give me an example. There was uh, probably the, the godfather of fitness was a gentleman by the name of Jack LaLanne. And I got to know him late in his life. He, he lived until 96. Um, uh, most people remember him from Jack LaLanne's juicer. But um, Jack Elaine always used to say, if it tastes good, spit it out. And I repeat that often, and my advisors say, please don't do that, because people think you want people to eat stuff that tastes bad. And that's not actually what Jack Elaine was saying. What Jack Elaine was saying was, you should actually be eating for your gut microbiome. And if you eat for your gut microbiome, then guess what? They will take care of their home, which happens to be you. Mm -hmm. And so the more you take care of them, the more they return the favor and take care of you. So some of the best prebiotic foods actually happen to be bitter foods. And if you look at super long-lived societies, one of the things that's interesting about these societies is they do in general like bitter foods. So those are the cabbage family, the brassica, the arugula, uh, these sorts of bitter foods. Watercress may be one of the greatest foods of all time. Uh, that bitterness actually comes from the plant warning you, are you sure you want to eat me? because I've got some compounds that are trying to dissuade you from eating me, uh, the bitterness. Why and is that, though? It, well, it turns out that they're polyphenols, and our gut microbiome actually take those polyphenols and turn them into actually life-enhancing compounds. And it's a concept that Nietzsche described as that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And tiny doses of let's use the word poison, actually improve longevity. You name the tiny dose of poison, you get an improvement in health and longevity, and it's, a, it's called hormesis, and it basically says that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Is the idea that we've got these 100 trillion cells that are trying to fight for survival, and it's making them stronger when you put something that is bitter or poison uh, into your body? Well, it turns out it's actually these chemicals, if you will, uh, actually interact with mitochondria receptors and mitochondria are the energy organelles in, in all of our cells. Uh, and these compounds, like for instance, uh, resveratrol in red wine is one of these hormetic compounds. And Resveratrol turns on a longevity receptor in mitochondria. Believe it or not, you can expose mice to low doses of radiation, and the mice that are exposed to low doses of radiation live longer than mice who are not exposed to radiation. I mean, really? In Europe, it's, it's popular to check into radon hotels where you will get a dose of radon uh, for the purpose of living longer. Whoa. Huh. 
crazy. And getting back to our original subject, it turns out that fasting is actually a hormetic stressor. And yeah. that, you know, if you fasting works at its most basic level by being a stressor, just like exercise. Exercise is a hormetic stressor. Um, no exercise is not very good for you. Some exercise is really good for you. A lot of exercise is really bad for you. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the, uh, I'm curious to know your your thoughts in terms of the correlation of these people that eat a lot of foods that have very healthy gut microbiomes. Uh, when you look at the blue zones like, you know, Sardinia, of course, you got Okinawa in Japan. Uh, do you see a correlation of these people eating foods that are extremely healthy for your gut that are able to live longer because of that? Is there a direct correlation between those two points? Yeah, and that's the actually really talked about in the longevity paradox. One of the things that's fascinating is this relationship between the wall of your gut and the microbiome. And it turns out from animal studies that aging occurs at the most fundamental level as this wall of our gut begins to break down and that bacteria and bacterial pieces begin to come across the wall. And the longer that wall is intact, then you will not see any signs of aging. And so that is build the wall. Build the wall. Exactly. And so actually all of my programs are actually designed to build the wall and to make the mucus layer that protects the wall the, the most intact. So these societies, first of all, they have wildly different diets. And I lived in the only blue zone in North America for most of my career, Loma Linda, California. Mm. And so I'm, I'm actually the only nutritionist who has actually lived in a blue zone for most of their life. Really? So, yeah. So, huh. but the, the, the diets are wildly different. And so when we say, well, all the blue zones eat beans and grains, well, no, they don't actually. Um, or all the blue zones eat a low fat diet. Well, no, Sardinian Crete uses a liter of olive oil per week. Uh, that's a lot of olive oil. The Okinawans basically use no oil except a little bit of lard. Uh, the Okinawans eat 85% uh, of their diet is a purple sweet potato. The Achiroles, which is a town south of Naples in southern Italy, uh, don't eat any grains, any breads, uh, they eat mostly anchovies and red wine and a ton of rosemary. So what I think unifies all of these different diets is all of these blue zones eat very little animal protein. And that's actually the only unifying feature in, in all of these diets. So, um, and I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, um, which is, uh, believe me, a meat-eating town. And um, for me to say we should really cut back on the amount of animal protein that we eat in our diet it makes me cry every time I think about it. It's tough. But it's tough. It tough. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that is – because this, this is the thing I constantly think about, right, which is America – has one of the 
most highest demand in terms of seeking nutritional health, the latest fitness uh, exercises, the latest diets. It's the biggest market, right? Yet we also have a very poor ranking when it comes to life expense, uh, expectancy versus countries that are far less developed than us that have very little resources. So do you feel that it comes really down to the fact that we just need to eat less animal products and just eat less in general? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're overfed, but undernourished. Um, there, was a, there was a report in the U.S. Senate uh, that basically says our soils are so depleted of minerals and vitamins that we could eat constantly, but we would never get the fundamental nutrients that we need. And when I put this, yeah, when I put this slide up, I asked physicians to guess when the Senate report came out. Most of them say, oh, you know, 1990, uh, maybe 2000. It was actually 1936. And yeah, 1936. Wow. And you think about how depleted our soils were then. And now um, our soils were, were once living organisms in and of themselves. The soil has a microbiome. Uh, the microbiome actually got nutrients into the roots of plants. And now there's no microbiome left in any soil. The soil is devoid of nutrients. You can grow a plant that looks like an apple or looks like an ear of corn, but that apple and that ear of corn has no relationship to what was grown a hundred years ago. Uh, it's just devoid. So yeah, we're, we're overfed, but undernourished. And you're right. We, we have one of the worst health spans of, of really any country. Um, and our lifespan for the last three years in North America has actually decreased three years in a row. Wow. Yeah. Three years running now, we've decreased our lifespan. What are we at now? 75 on average? For yeah, men but, and yeah, well, you know, women are actually up into the 80s, but you know, men are about 74. It's decreased three years in a row. And if the predictions are right, and sadly, they're probably going to be right. I'm a baby boomer. My my kids, the Gen Xers, will have shorter lives than the baby boomers. Um, so the baby boomers will probably be the last, unless unless the millennials can get the point that, you know, we're really stupid. I mean, baby boomers actually have far worse health or on more medications than our parents were the greatest generation. And it's like, what? You know, the, the it just keeps getting are, worse and worse yeah, and worse. You're saying the healthiest ever, you know, we were so smart and it just keeps getting worse. Do you think there's some correlation with the fact that we are getting this to this point of overpopulation and you've got these companies like Monsanto that are creating GMOs just because you're right. I mean, putting in genetics into vegetables and all these foods allows them to grow more foods at a cheaper cost. But there's certainly downsides to that. But it's kind of unavoidable because they control so much of the supply. So is that a big part of the fact that even though Americans are eating, trying to eat healthy, that from the ground up, it's just 
broken system that where we're eating a lot of these pesticides and chemicals. Yeah, unfortunately, about 98% of all the corn grown in North America is genetically modified. Um, same with soybeans. And it doesn't, uh, and the other sad thing is GMO no longer um, is the most worrisome thing is that Roundup, which is glyphosate, uh, is now sprayed on conventional corn, conventional soybeans, conventional canola, conventional oats for desiccating them before harvest, which makes it easier to harvest. And this stuff is not washed off. And uh, I go into the the dangers of Roundup, um, both in the plant paradox and now in the energy paradox. Uh, it's scary stuff. The other thing that's interesting is we are getting a push for regenerative agriculture. And back 50 years ago, before factory farming, uh, farmers would rotate crops. They would maybe plant corn one year, then they'd plant soybeans, then they'd let the fields go fallow, and they'd plant alfalfa to regenerate the soil. And it turns out there was a study commissioned by the Department of Agriculture in Pennsylvania looking at perfect high-tech you know, now conventional agriculture versus the old system. And they looked at salaries, they looked at profits for uh, farm workers, they looked at far profits for farmers, and they looked at production. And they found that the old system actually produced more food and more profit compared to perfect uh, factory uh, farming. And it was actually suppressed for a couple of years. And then it was put out on PLOS, P-L-O-S. And I recommend anybody look it up. It's, uh, it's startling. You, this has all been fed to us literally as a profit motive for big, big pharma and big agriculture. Now, are there any actions to reverse that now that's happening? Yeah, I mean, that that's really happening. I had a um, farmer on my podcast, the Dr. Gundy podcast, uh, actually last week. Farmer Dan from Texas. Uh, Farmer Dan the Chicken Man. And he's, he's an engineer. And um, he decided that he didn't like engineering anymore. He was bored. And so he decided to engineer uh, chicken farming and beef farming. And he had some land. And so he's gone back to farming chickens. Again, I grew up in Nebraska. And, and chickens were a farm animal that were let out in the fields where cattle graze. And they're insectivores. They love insects. So they would make a beeline for the cow pies, the turds of cows, and which are loaded with insects. And they would claw through the, the cow pie, eating the insects, and they'd distribute the manure. And so that was normal. And then you ate the chicken eggs, but nobody really ate the chickens because um, they were too tough. And so he's redone this. So he now takes his chickens in a movable cage and they go to a certain area where the cows and they eat everything, uh, eat the cowboys, distribute the manure. And that so he has regenerative agriculture and he lets his fields go fallow. 
And the chickens, of course, their poop fertilizes. So he has, he doesn't have to fertilize anymore. And wow. this is, this is happening. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I mean, there is, there is a lot of talk and, and, you know, happening around the fact that in 30 or 50 years, the idea of eating animals is just going to be shunned to the point where people that are eating animals now are going to be made fun of by those people that are living 40 or 50 years later. And that even meat may have to be put out into the black market. Obviously, this is very controversial topics that people are talking about. But the rise of things like Beyond Meat is, of course, the talk of the town and the fact that it's there's a lot of hope for that, right? If you look at the stock, I mean, it's just going nuts. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on these alternative meat products like Beyond Meat and how it could potentially have a similar benefits of eating meat in terms of the taste and uh, some of the benefits of nutrition and if it will also have the same downsides of eating animal proteins in terms of longevity? Well, number one, we have to realize that uh, Beyond Beef and the Impossible Burger are processed foods. They are the ultimate processed foods. And if you think eating processed foods is bad for you, which I do, then why would you want to eat those processed foods? Also, they both have glyphosate in them. And if you think eating glyphosate is a good idea, then you know, have an Impossible Burger or Beyond Beef. What is glyphosate? That's Roundup. Roundup, okay. Yeah. So plus they use proteins, uh, pea protein or soy protein, which unfortunately have lectins, which is my favorite topic that probably we won't talk about today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, again, coming from Loma Linda, um, we used a lot of what's called texturized vegetable protein, which was soy, which was extruded under high pressure and high heat to make this mystery meat. And we could make mystery meats uh, taste like shrimp. We could make it taste like pork. Uh, you name it, we could make it taste like it. And I always felt that that was a mistake for vegans and vegetarians to try to duplicate uh, animal flavors when we really should have been eating plants. But let me talk about mussels for a minute. Turns out mussels actually are regenerative aquaculture. And mussels actually are probably the best uh, filtering system in oceans. They filter over 20 liters of ocean water every day. They don't concentrate any toxins in them. And they're free. They actually, you know, live on floating micronutrients. And so there's some innovating folks off the coast of California who are planting mussels on underwater cables and harvesting the mussels. And wow. so I think there, I personally am what my wife and I call a veg aquarian. We... <laughs> We eat mostly vegan during the week, and then we have bivalves and shellfish uh, during the weekend. So, no animal meat. Well, you know, every now and then, uh, people, I will have a grass fed, grass finished steak um, about once every three months. And I know the farmer. Uh, we now get 
chicken from Farmer Dan who Farmer feeds Dan. his chicken. I gotta get his uh, contact. Farmer Dan. Yeah, with, man. chicken man. The chick, chicken Dan. Does he like uh, to call that chicken man? No, he doesn't actually. <laughs> I made that. <laughs> I made that up. That. He says, don't tell me uh, but yeah, he now has lectin-free chickens um, that he feeds a lectin-free diet, and they pasture. Uh, and he's he's getting so overloaded that he's putting in another crop of chickens. But and that's again a special treat. Um, so if we view these things as special treats, I think it's a whole lot easier on on everybody. Yeah, I mean, we didn't get into lectin. We'd love to have you back sometime and talk about that in more depth because it is a huge bit controversial as, as, as I'm sure you've gotten some, some people writing in as well, but I want to dig into it and ask you some questions, but I do want to leave the audience with some actionable steps in terms of what they can do on a daily basis that would not only increase their longevity, but also increase their energy throughout their day. So if you were to provide if someone was eating two meals, right, let's skip breakfast and let's go to lunch and dinner. What are some of the core ingredients that you would recommend? What are three ingredients that you would recommend to use? Well, it turns out um, when I was writing my first book, most people eventually settle on five different meals that they eat repeatedly. And they just settle on those yeah, five go-to things. Yeah. And so I don't mind that, but we have to realize that if we study hunter-gatherers, they eat uh, on average 200 to 250 different plant materials on a rotating basis and, you know, over the year. And you go, and even if you had the perfect organic diet, I mean, if you really think you can eat 250 different plant species, you know, I got I got oceanfront property here in Palm Springs, California to sell you. Uh, it's not <laughs> going to happen. And that's why I actually became very interested in in supplementation, because we just don't you know have access to that sort of mixture. On the other hand, the more I think people get cruciferous vegetables into their diet, the more people get um, chicory into their diet. That's my new push. So chicory is radicchio, chicory, frisee, um, uh, for instance, Ju Jerusalem artichokes are full of inulin, uh, Belgian endive is chicory. The chicory has probably the most beneficial prebiotics of any food that you can eat. Wow, I've never heard of uh, this. This is, this is great. Artichoke hearts. If mm. you can have artichoke hearts, um, couple times a week or an artichoke, you're way ahead of the game. I just, for instance, last night I had a, a frisee and radicchio salad, uh, a big giant mixing bowl. That was my dinner. Mm. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing, starting tomorrow, everybody get more vitamin D in their diet. Uh, take a vitamin D supplement. Most North Americans are deficient in vitamin D. There's now five papers that show the higher your vitamin D level, the less susceptible you are to COVID, and the less COVID will you know, be bad if you get it. The lower your vitamin D level, the more COVID will wipe you off the face of the planet. Mm. So, I just thought of a question that I wanted to ask you before this interview, because we had a doctor Mike on, 
on the show, and he was talking about this downside of having too much supplementation of vitamin D, E, and K because of the fact that these are fat-soluble supplements, meaning having too much can actually be toxic to your, to your body. Well, so I've been measuring vitamin D levels for 20 years every three months on my patients, and I'm an aggressive pusher of vitamin D. I have never seen vitamin D toxicity ever. Dr. Mark Hyman has never seen vitamin D toxicity ever. Um, I have people who run their vitamin D levels in the 200s, and they're not toxic. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic and Quest now say 150 nanograms per milliliter is normal. It's not toxic. I've run my vitamin D greater than 120 for the last 20 years to prove I'm not dead. Uh, so this is, quite frankly, Dr. Hollick from Boston, the father of vitamin D research, has only seen vitamin D toxicity once in his lifetime. And that was in a physician who by accident was taking a million international units of vitamin D for six months because it was mislabeled. Right. And I'm not recommending anybody take a million international units, but bare minimum for anybody should be 5,000. I have a number of my autoimmune patients on 30, 40,000 a day um, to get their vitamin D levels up. Interesting. And yeah, it's confusing because generally these bottles come with 1,000 or 500 per pill. And they tell you that a recommended dose is one per day. And it's, it's, we're just, it's all wrong. 80% of Southern Californians in my practice, when they first come in, are vitamin D deficient. 80%. In California, too. In California. That's sun. That's because we use sunscreen, which is one of the dumbest things. And that's another subject. All right. Well, round two, Stephen, uh, Dr. Gundry, would love to have you back on. Uh, what is one small but piece of actionable? step that the listener can take after listening to this that they can do to increase their energy, to hopefully increase their longevity, uh, something small that they can do right after listening to this that they can take action on. It turns out the higher your level of vitamin D, the longer your telomeres are. And if you like the telomere theory of aging, you want long telomeres. So if you hear nothing else that I say, take your vitamin D and start skipping meals and you're going to live a long time. Beautiful. And where can people find you online? Uh, so you can find me at drgundry.com. You can find me at gundrydmd.com. You can go to my podcast, Dr. Gundry's Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you guys go check out Dr. Gundry. Guys, we'll link up his YouTube, his books, his website, everything that you need below. Thank you guys again for tuning in to this week's episode, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.